Hi, I'm Jason Sachs. Welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade. This time, part five of the epic interview that Dominic Griggs, Eric Hoffman, and I conducted with famed comics writer-editor Jim Shooter. This time we discuss Frank Miller's meteoric rise as comics' greatest artist, the way Walt Simonson explained to Shooter that Thor would be turned into a frog, the secret origin of epic comics, the evolution of Marvel between different generations, Jim Shooter's interesting time at Disney, and much, much more. This fascinating hour of behind-the-scenes comics history starts right after this ad. Talk, both Danny and I have been talking about story and structure and 
and stuff. It was the first electric story. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and it was great. And then so he started writing it and drawing it, and that's when I was starting to win the, win the arguments upstairs more because I said, you, you, you wait, you will see this. Chuck Rosansky, I was out in Denver, and he said, um, he said, I like you, I trust your judgment. He said, what's the next big thing? I said, Daredevil. He said, Daredevil? Yeah. I said, yeah, Daredevil. <laughs> He's sorry, I'm going to bet on your, on your judgment. So he started buying up Daredevil. They have a fortune. Because <laughs> when Frank took out all yeah. of those back issues, mm -hmm. super valuable. And so he's still making money now. He still, he still sells those things. What was the, uh, the, there was the byline that was put Oh, yeah, it's actually in the 70s yeah, book. Introducing the greatest... Oh, yeah, I gotta find that. Is it? Well, you guys are clearly impressed because you put a byline in the... Yeah, the credits box. crazy I was... Because I, 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 I put my ass on the line here. It's either Stan Lee or Stan Lee Pastiche. No, I was doing a lot of touting Frank. Oh, you gotta see this guy. Lanky Frank Miller or something? <laughs> From time to time, a truly great new talent, a truly great new artist will explode upon the Marvel scene like a bombshell. Rambling Roger McKenzie, Kinky Klaus Janssen, Joe Rosen, George Russos, Amiable Al Milgram, and Jim Troubleshooter <laughs> confidently predict newcom newcomer, lanky Frank Miller, is just such an artist. I did not write that. What's that? I don't know who wrote that, but I, don't know. <laughs> but I agree with it. He did an issue of John Carter, Warlord of Mars, and then two issues of Spider-Man, and then take over. I realized it was my secret. Oh, Mr. Were there? It was my secret dream to do crime comics with a superhero in them, and I and so I lobbied for the title. According to Frank Lu Luis. Oh, Frank. I mean, like I say, real intense. So one one day he comes in, it's all dirty. It's the morning. It's like right I I always kind of early. So I was there. He comes in, all filthy. He said, you know what I did last night? I said, what? He said, proud of the tops of hell's but, uh, what a nut, you know, I mean, he's probably getting, uh, you know, uh, art ideas for Here's, oh, yeah, and then he'd yeah. go up on the rooftops and he would draw water the water towers, yeah. He talks about, in, in a Comics Journal interview, Here, here's proof, by the way, that you tell your stories consistently and then we quote you correctly. This is you. I got Frank Miller on Daredevil as penciler around the same time Roger McKenzie started writing it. For a while, every day or so, the financial officer and or the circulation VP would insist to me that the book, one of our lowest sellers, ought to be canceled. I argued to keep it on the grounds that this Miller kid was great and the book would catch on. So. There you go. Absolutely true. Wow. So, and, and I think he might use the exact words for that. He, uh, I mean, he proved me right. Because, you know, every time you bring me a story, it's like exponentially better than the one before. Wow, this guy's good. Yeah. going to be dangerous. So I, I I've been reading comics for all my life, yeah. and there comes a time in every boy's life where he starts to move away from comics. His work on Daredevil started about the age when I was about the age of fourteen, and it was like exactly the right comic at exactly the right age for me. And like I really think it's because of Miller that I kept reading comics for my whole yeah. life. Oh, I, 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 I can see that. I mean, it's it's like we were lucky because we had a number of things like that. To greater and lesser extent, Walt's Thor. Mm -hmm. 
you know, I mean, people yeah. stuck around because of Walt's Thor. Yeah, that was what I mean. Walt is too. I mean, he, he he says I want to do some crazy stuff, and I said, well, he's Walt. We'll be alright. And uh, so he did that Bay Area Bill stuff. Yeah, that was. Yeah. I, I was like, all right, I'm okay with that. So then he's been doing. <laughs> yeah, then it took off, and he was doing it great, and it was selling like crazy. It was his first real hit. He used to be the guy who killed books. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and then uh, so it was his first really big fan popular book. And I remember one time he, he I'm sitting there at my veteran chief desk like general half track, not nine months. <laughs> and uh, and he sticks his head in. Doesn't even come into my office. <coughs> he sticks his head around. <coughs> he says, um, hey Jim, you know, yes. He says, I'm gonna turn Thor into a frog, okay? <laughs> <coughs> right. And I'm thinking, wow, it's wall, how bad could it be? <laughs> and uh, you know, it wasn't bad, it was fun. It was, it was hilarious. Mm -hmm. But that's it, that's, that's Walt. <clears throat> you know, you, you got on a roll. And you don't leave him alone, let him go. Yeah. I, I was going to say, I read the Frank Miller run recently there, though. Just, you know, over a period of two or three nights or whatever. And it's amazing. It within, yeah. within one year, it was like the development mm -hmm. is just un unmatched. I've been writing Harry Potter for a few months, and the first issue I picked up yeah. was the one where Electra got killed. I had no idea who any of these people were, yeah. but it was still a great story. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I, I, I love to write these long pieces about comics history. I wrote a long piece on Daredevil 181, which is that issue. And, like, it's fundamentally perfect. He has repeating beats at the top of each page. He has a storytelling that introduces you, to, introduces you to the character, immediately creates high stakes, and then delivers this in this really smart and innovative way that echoes what happens before, echoes what happens after. There's a crucial scene right in the middle where there's word balloons surrounding um, surrounding uh, Bullseye as he's lying on the floor. He's figured out that Matt Murdock is actually a daredevil. And he's got, he's lying on the floor, he's got pictures next to him, and he's, he's just laughing. And the, 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 the word balloons of the laughter kind of echo the word balloons on the page, and his image bisects the page, this beautiful diagonal image. And it's just like perfect page after perfect page that built to that to the side being thrust into her body, which is, Next trick. which is like perfectly realized as this like, Another diagonal, which is you know so powerful, but also broken out of this grid that he's deliberately built all throughout. So from a technical standpoint, it's just like a perfect book. No, no exactly. I mean, like the thing is, uh, up until the day where he said, "I got it," you know, it, I, it's, we're telling stories. Up until that day, he struggled. He really just didn't know what to put in this picture. You know, I mean, he he didn't draw that well, and and, and he, the thinking wasn't there yet. And it went on like a light bulb. I mean, when he did that first one right, he was remembering, and I said, you know, let's establish them. Let me introduce the characters. Give me a shot so I can rec recognize them. You know, going through it all, all the, the, the drawing stuff. And, uh, and then when he finally occurred to him, <laughs> after that, man, it was, uh, everything just got better and better and more nuance and more thought to the, He's frequently cited you actually oh, really? as as being a uh, you know crucial influence. Yeah. In He's one of the few guys who you lost when DC threw money at him to do Ronin and then Dark Knight. It didn't really lose him. He, um, no, he came I think back. came back for that yeah, Daredevil Born Again. Well, he he, uh, uh, he was under contract, and his contract was coming up, 
And he and Starlin and um, Simonson came to me. We were already doing creator-owned and epic. But it, it was all little short stories and stuff. And the three of them came to me and they said, uh, uh, we want to do creator-owned comic books. Yeah. And uh, I said, OK, let's do it. And they said, what do you mean, let's do it? Let's do it. He said, you don't have to ask anybody? I said, no, but we can ask somebody if you want. You know? <laughs> so I said, come on, let's go see Mike. And we went into Mike Hobson's office. And I said, hey, Mike, uh, these guys have uh, ideas for creator of comic books. We publish, they own, you know, just like a book publisher. He said, oh, okay, well, good. You know, uh, you know, like, that's nice. All right, guess we'll need some contracts. I'll, I'll help you with those. And they're like looking at each other, wow, we used to do this? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, we did. And um, Walt, actually, at the same time, we were starting to do the graphic novels. So Walt actually ended up doing Star Slammers instead mm -hmm. of the graphic novel. And never got around to doing this epic comic. Uh, uh, Starlin did the first, The Death of Captain Marvel. And, uh, but then he wanted to do Dreadstar as a, as a comic book. And, uh, uh, Frank was going to do something. But at that time, he had really gotten hot. And Jeanette Kahn is always calling him and wants to take him to lunch and all this stuff. And um, so uh, anyway, he came to me and he says, well, we go to lunch. I said, sure, so we go to lunch. And we just don't talk about anything. And then he says, uh, let's take a walk. I said, OK. So we're kind of strolling around the city. And, and finally, he says, I, I don't want to sign any contract. I want to do a job with see. I said, okay. You know, I said, listen, Frank, I don't want you to be here because we're, you're trapped here. I said, go there, find out that we're better, and come back. And uh, he said, you know, you're not mad? I said, no, just, just do it, you know. So I said, well, why do you want to do running a DC? You can do it here. You know, you forget the daily, the, the monthly contract. You can just do a graphic novel. And he said, well, he said, you know, he said, yeah, I know, you told me you, you were going to do this and you're going to make contracts and stuff. He said, but I'm dealing, over there, I'm dealing with the president and the publisher. And over here, well, you're the editor-in-chief, but, you know, what if, you know, you can't pull it off? And I said, well, I can, and, but if they're giving you a better deal, go with it, you know. Well, they gave him a worse deal. DC owns one. And yeah, that's uh, right. Frank has a, a decent but I mean, basically, it's, it's it's kind of a deluxe work for our country. Mm -hmm. And we, Walt, Star Stars, and Starlin, Red Star. I mean, we we did it the right way. Our deal was much better than theirs. And uh, and so he did come back, and he he said, uh, you know, like uh, it also run was a disaster. I mean, when he first did it, they sold it in real well because it was it was Frank. Mm -hmm. It didn't sell through. Mm -hmm. Bud Plant offered, you know, that's where I got the cordwood joke. He said that he was rolling them up and selling them as firewood uh, because they, he had tons of them. And uh, <laughs> uh, now, of course, when Frank later became a superstar, more the superstar, all those old things became more valuable. Right. But at that time, they weren't. And then he, won, he came back and he said he wanted to do uh, electro. With Sinkevich? Yeah, well, we wanted to do an electrograph. Oh, right. We had the electrograph again. I don't think we decided who the artist was. We just wanted to do a graphic novel. Okay. And uh, uh, I said, okay, but not like Roman. He said, what do you mean? I said, it's unreadable. 
<laughs> you're going to do stuff. You're going to tell a story. Fine. You're going to you know, do it like you used to do stuff, or, or just be clear. Fine. Sometimes you want to do it alone and forget. It. And he got all huffy with me and he storms off. <clears throat> so that night, and I'll tell you why I know this later. That night he had dinner with Will Eisner. And he's telling it, Will, what an asshole I am, of course. And, uh, and why? Because he, he, he wrote and he said it was unreadable. And, and, and this is what Will said, and this is a quote, Frank, it's unreadable horseshit. <laughs> unreadable horseshit. So the Frank was kind of, you don't get mad at Will, so he, he was just a little huffy. <laughs> he was a little huffy and went home. And he picked Ronan off the shelf, which he hadn't looked at for months. And he had trouble reading it. The reason I know that is he called me the next morning and said, can we, can we go to lunch again? I said, sure. So we went to our favorite little Italian place. And he said, he told me that, that Will is there. And he told me the rest of the story. And uh, he said, I want to do it, and I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll tell the story. He said, I'll do it straight. He said, I'm not going to get weird and experimental. He said, done deal. And so we, we signed, a, uh, signed a deal. It took him like two years to do it, I think, but he, he finally did it. And it was really funny because, like, he started working with Sienkiewicz, but Sienkiewicz maybe did the Epicon too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, at that point, after doing New Mutants, Sienkiewicz is always like he's in a con constant experimental mode. And so now Frank has all these kind of difficult to write pictures, and he's trying to pull it together. And he says, "You know what?" He says, "It's like it's like God is punishing me." <laughs> <laughs> but he he pulled it together. I mean, like Bill gives you great images, and even though he was kind of going a little more new mutants than I would have rather, you know, I would have rather had panels. But uh, but Frank pulled it together. It came out just fine. And uh, that was all good. There's also one time, I don't know if it was the same time. It was, it was for a graphic novel. Anyway, Frank wanted to do a graphic novel. And he had to get on, he was going to move to California. He had to get on a plane to California like in a, a couple hours. And he had to have $5,000 to, uh, uh, pay for this apartment, to put the down payment on this apartment he got in, in Los Angeles. And he comes and says, I need $5,000. I said, well, I just don't happen to have that on me, you know? And, uh, and uh, he said, well, uh, maybe I could get an advance on my graphic novel. All right, so I went upstairs, and I, I, there was a, Barry's assistant was a guy named Jerry, they were on. Um, and I told you, I said, I said, I need an advance against this graphic novel, $5,000, and I need it right now. And he's like, well, no, okay. So he did. And I said, come with me, because check would know any good. So we went across to the bank, and they knew me there. And I convinced them to get cash that check. <laughs> and so he puts the 5000 bucks, sprints to the airport, goes to LA. <laughs> and he moved in there. But then we had to wait two, two years for graphic novel. But, but it's all right. I mean, like. He's, we certainly were going to make that money back. Yeah. So it was not exactly a huge risk. You know. I think that was a twenty-four ninety-nine hardcover graphic novel or something know, at that I, time. I don't know what it was, but it's I, I really expensive. He had to go to California. Lives again. He had to go to California like that yeah. day to get his apartment. <laughs> I need five thousand dollars. Yeah, right. So thanks. You know, give me some more. But uh, yeah, even it's kind of a nut, but a good nut and uh, real intense. Mike Richardson does a lot more dealing with than I do. I haven't seen him for a couple of years. Uh, Mike seems like he doesn't understand why Frank is so unhappy. He's so, so you know, uh, always depressed and stuff. Why would he be depressed? 
It's like on top of the world. I guess it's just sort of this intense personality. It's how he's built. Yeah. Yeah. I interviewed Mark Badger okay. recently. And, well, not too recently, like the last year or something, for, for your website, actually. Oh, right. Yeah, and... And uh, I was still reading it. It was, yeah, he was talking about, you know, working at Marvel in those days. And it was sort of a career over the interview. But he mentioned, and he, you know, he came out of abstract art and all these things. And his comics were very, you know, visually sort of difficult in, yes. in a lot of ways. And maybe not palatable to... Uh, sort of the you know, house style, as it were, with Marvel Comics at the time. And it, it, interestingly enough, he pointed toward your lecture as being one of the most influential things in his comics career. Where he actually said, he said that, he said that, 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 that lecture that I got from Shooter was, was absolutely key. Dollar 98 stories on the Yep. And I thought that was just so interesting coming from him, who's, Visual style was, you know, that was like a standard standard procedure. And right. Morris, you know, right. Sit down and more. And it wasn't really a house. I mean, well, what I had to do was get. Yeah, that's sort I of. I mean, like, like, uh, Walt's stuff is entirely different than Michael Golden's stuff. Sure. Mm -hmm. Entirely different than like Zach's stuff. And and yet, I convinced all of them to tell the story. Didn't right. convince them too much. Those guys. But I mean, you know, I mean, I, I, I that's what my bedrock. You know, we got to tell the story. Well, it's like, you know, like Wally Woods thing. Cinema, you know, cinema has language, comics have a language. Yeah. There's there's a language that is has been formed by very incredibly gifted artists yeah. over time. And right. it's, the, and, and, it's yeah. the best way to tell a story. Exactly. And, right. and, and uh, you don't have to reinvent everything. You right. can learn mm -hmm. from the people who went before. <laughs> and know. it's fine to experiment within that. People always throw yeah. uh, throw Will Eisner up at me and say, well, "Well, Will always did all this crazy experimental stuff." And I say, "Yes, on the spirit. Look at his westerns. Look at anything else he mm -hmm. ever did, where it wasn't about him." But the spirit was spirit like, play. and P.S. He's Will. And he can get yeah. away with it. Yeah, he has the, the skill spirit, to pull it off. The spirit was a newspaper insert, and yeah. it was a totally different format. Totally different. Yeah, and, and, and so then, yeah. so uh, you know. But then, then I used to have kids. Uh, we used a lot of QBs, and like I said, they were very. They've been taught professionalism, if not much about comics. Um, but I'd also have kids come over from the Eisner School, very, very taught. taught School of Visual Arts? No. No? I'm not sure. Uh, I thought that's what the school was no. called. No, is that uh, Cooper Union, maybe? Okay, that sounds right, too. I don't know. Anyway, anyway, he had a class in the university, and he taught these kids. And I had these kids come, come to Valiant, and... Um, and they show me stuff. I said, it's pretty cool. I said, but now here's what I want you to do. I said, I want you to, you know, just curvy grid, you know, rectilinear panels, keep the stuff in the panel, no overlapping, do the insets unless I tell you, you know. And they look at me. And, and so they just kind of do whatever they want. And I said, you're not doing what I said. Yeah, well, I'm doing it the way Will told me. Well, is Will signing your check? <laughs> uh -huh. I, I fired every one of them. Every time we got one, he wouldn't do what I told him. And I'd say, you can't work here, you know? Sorry, gotta go. Pay them for whatever page they did or something, and then they go. And I, but they, they, I, 
I kept telling Will, when I talked to Will, I said, you got to stop telling these kids. They can manipulate time with the shape of the panel. I said, you can manipulate time right. with the shape of the panel. They can't do it. When they get to be you, then they can do it. I said, mm -hmm. you know, teach them some fundamentals, you know. And he's like, well, you know, he says, some of these guys, they have potential. And maybe if I get that spark going, I, yeah, what you're doing is you're getting a lot of kids unemployed. I said, because they, they won't do what they're asked to do. And if you try to tell them what they, they say, I was taught by a genius, you know, <laughs> you can just shut up now. And uh, I'm like, no, I'm, you're doing it my way, pal, or you're not doing it. Mm -hmm. But uh, especially then, because I mean, like I said, I didn't have much, I didn't have weapons to fight with, that I didn't have money for artists, I didn't have, you know, uh, anything except man hours. And so I just, I got a little more wise and courage. I said, we're going to do this. There are rules. I want, when somebody picks up a Valiant book, any Valiant book, I want you to know what it's going to be like inside. I want, you know, any Valiant book, you're going to pick it up. It's going to have Rickle in your pants. It's going to have a lot of story in it. It's going to be a good story. It's going to be, uh, you know, uh, straightforward. It's about telling a story because none of you guys are Jim Lee, you know. And uh, so uh, uh, kind of enforced that. But there we really did about really had to yet because we didn't have anything else and uh, uh, the uh, you know I mean most of, most of them broke Gary went to see to argue with me all the time because he wanted to do insects and overlapping and that you know and, and he was you know I'm Barry Wintersmith and I said well I'm you know and go be Barry Wintersmith someplace else mm -hmm. be a great loss but you either do, do it the value way So he, he would uh, show me these, he'd show me a Conan page he did, and it would have like, he said, see, it expands the, it expands the size of the image. And it went inside there. So, no, you know, Barry, it shrinks the size of the image. Because all this space that's around the inside, there's some leaves and stuff, because it's meaningless. It even looks at it. So you would basically cut off that corner of the page with this inset. And, you know, what good is it? Why, why don't you just, you know, draw the picture? You know, it's what's in the paint. What's in the paint? You know, when you get to be Will Eisner, you realize. But anyway, yeah, well, I used to, you know, we used to, we'd always get together at conventions, have lunch, dinner or something. And, uh, and we'd, still, we'd start talking. I remember one time I said, you know, three times in my career, well, this industry's almost died. He said, eight times in my <laughs> <laughs> So when we talk about it, basically we agree. It was, you know, about story and storytelling, and it's always a combination of, you know, people just losing track of that. And usually, what happened was a Stanley would come along, Jack Kirby would come along, and also a change in distribution would come along around the same time. So with me, it was the direct market, mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, and we had good. Uh, in the '60s, it was Stan and Jack, and they got distributed by. Uh, uh, you know, it was always, you know, there was always some some kind of combination that that sort of kept us alive. And, uh, it's it's an, I, to me, it still seems like the publishing is dying. I look at the sales. There were three books over a hundred thousand last year in March. Three books. And lowest selling at Marvel was around that number. That. 100,000 is considered bottom of the Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and the break even in those days 
uh, was 70, 70,000. And that was a loaded rate. That wasn't just a direct cost. And so we were making money. But they always said, well, you could make more. And I guess we could. But, uh, yeah. but the whole paradigm has changed. Yeah, no, it's, it's it, yeah. about the books. They're, they're IP generation companies. Yeah, which is sad because to me the way to do that is to do, do what we did. Mm -hmm. We were saying before that out of the 90s, very few things had lasting value yeah. came. Well, they're not lasting value because they were drawn well, are they? Mm -hmm. they, were, they were good good characters, well realized, and good stories. And, uh, you know, and occasionally good art. Perlman did some of the best things he's ever done. Uh, Windsor Smith, after I beat him up, they don't do it. Straightforward, he did some great stuff. Uh, and then the old guys. Uh, Dick Dixon. Yeah, Dixon is really underrated. Yeah, uh, he did a good job on the film. That was so funny. David Lapham, I had John Dixon inking him for a while. And uh, he used to grumble because all pencils hate all the He's not getting all the things I wanted. Oh, look, he didn't do this, this eyelash right. But then I talked to David a few years ago. He says, remember I used to pitch about uh, John Dixon? He said, yes, I said, yes. He said, I was wrong. <laughs> he said, he, he really saved my hands. And he said, all I could see was some little thing that he didn't do exactly the way I imagined it. He said, but I look back at it now, and he says, I realized that was one of the best things you ever did. But that's that too. Even new guys, well, he's not in Canada, right? <laughs> What's especially striking about now is that you know, these superhero movies are incredible blockbusters, and yet it's done virtually nothing for the medium itself. Because the books aren't really much like that, right? No, they aren't. No, no. no. Because, because, you know, I mean... That's sort of right. Uh, you know, when Batman was on TV, Batman was selling a million copies a month. When, when the Hulk was on TV, the Hulk sales became one of our top books, the board top books. Now it's like movies and books are so dissimilar that uh, you know I could really say it's dark. Yeah. You know, the hero loses, uh, the building burns, the baby dies, the bad guy gets away with it, and you know, laughs all the way to the bank. Batman gets his back on Spider-Man gets signed. Right. Stuff like that. Come on, guys. Yeah. You know, like uh, I'm, I'm not saying it all has to be you know happy. Stop. But can we have a good kind of win once? You know, once mm -hmm. That was like I said, my win in the movies. <laughs> yeah. And my that was one of my things. Overcoming yeah. these right. odds, you know, rather than losing to I think that too many of these guys they grew up um, just kind of thinking of all the shocking things they could do. It's it's, it's really that's what it's about. It's like what's the most shocking thing I can do? I know we broke his back, but now let's, you know, tear his eye out. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It just uh, and the the crap is. Oh, well, my pet do. my pet theory has something to do with maturity too. Is that uh, especially these days, it's easy to to not have perspective on what you're creating, not have to vet anything through to anybody. So you can just create what you want to create, and you're ha you're always going to have enough friends around you to say, yeah, that's really wonderful, right? And there's no, you know, Weisinger was an ass, you know, all the words that you used for him before. But one thing he did do was force you to to 
increase your quality to create something that people outside of your little niche of friends would like. Yeah, no, he, he absolutely did. And I, I just think there aren't, there aren't any editors anymore. There are people who, they're expediters. They process the stuff through. But I don't think, I'm not seeing anybody teaching anything. I'm not seeing anybody actually taking an editorial hand, not with a Walt, but like with a young guy. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, when I walked down our, our little hall of editors there, they had 14 of them, and I would walk down the row, Larry Hunt. Archie Good, Bobby Snapson, Anna Senti, Bob Budiansi, Bob um, Denny when he was on. Uh, uh, who else? I don't know. Like, we had some really good editors, you know? And even ones who weren't like great editors, they always had a specialty that made it good, like Milgram. Not a great editor, not a great story guy. But I could help with that. And he was really good with the artists. And he was really good at finding artists and very and developing, you know, and then and uh, yeah, with, okay, so I know with him I had to be a little more involved with the stories. Uh, whereas with Larry, stay out of his way. Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, Archie, you know, Archie knew more than I did. So, uh, that, what a great guy. He was amazing. Archie was one of the greats. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. Talk to a fan, he said the name Archie Goodwin. Oh, yeah, he was better, I guess. You know, sorry. And, and so, like, the, the, the fans will, uh, you know, oh, yeah, he, he was pretty good, right? Yeah. But you talk to professionals, yeah. you get, you get you know, like, uh, uh, Mobius. Sure. You know, you're in a room with Mobius and, and uh, 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 other great artists. I'm having trouble thinking of right at the moment. Archie is our dear. Uh, Frazetta and... And you know all these other people. Uh, mm -hmm. I've read. I've, they reprinted this Alien adaptation, mm -hmm. which is a work of art unto itself. It's, it's a adaptation of a of, of a horror movie. I mean, a good horror movie, but it's a work Walt. of art yeah. unto itself. Yeah, the, he, it, it was Paul. Yes, right. Yeah. yeah, it was just. I mean, you know, the art was wonderful as well. But it was not only that. It was how oh. how Archie interpreted. The story right. and, yeah. and got it across within that medium. And when Epic published the, the Mobius reprint of the Mobius stuff, yeah, had, you know, like they that stuff had been translated into English, and uh, I know the people who translated it, and the Lair PCAs, yeah, you know, mm -hmm. and they translated it. I'm yeah. not sure it says what it in English, what it said in French. Archie took this and he used that Look at it, and Stan was afraid because there was so much nudity and violence. But uh, he said, he said, I don't know. I said, it's a magazine. I don't have to say Marvel. You know, I was I was only the associate editor. Archie was the editor at that point. And um, anyway, Stan was kind of had cold feet. And uh, and like I said, I don't care if he was the boss or not. He was Stan. He told me to join the Boy Scouts, you know, woods rubbing sticks together. <laughs> but, but, uh, uh, so he, he didn't want to do it. And so they went to, what was it, 20th Century? They went to the uh, Lampoon people. Mm -hmm. yeah. 20th Century Communications, I think Something they were like called. That, yeah. yeah. Which was right around the corner from us. And, um, and they, they started publishing Heavy Metal. Well, then Stan was all hot to, uh, uh for us to do something. And, uh, was something that was a little more story driven, a little less, sex and violence and so we cooked up this idea of coming up with a you know kind of a softer 
heavy metal with kind of more, more emphasis on story. And, uh, and we couldn't use the name, obviously, so it became Epic Illustrated. And then getting Archie was the best thing He did a great job of it. Because I tried, before Archie started on it, and I was temporarily trying to keep it moving, I called Frank Rosetta mm -hmm. to uh, see if I'd get covers, a cover from him for our first issue, because I thought it would be really cool. Oh, yeah. Hey, you know, so Ellie Rosetta, who was the game, <coughs> she answered the phone. And I said, hi, I'm Jim Shooter from Marvel Comics. Not interested, click. That was our conversation, not interested, click. And uh, so I told Archie, I said, geez, you know, before you got here, we were talking about maybe getting the Rosetta cover. I said, I tried to call, and she, said, she hung up on me. He said, I'll call Ellie. Hey, Ellie, it's Archie. I don't know. Chats for a while, two covers. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like everybody loved Archie. He knew everybody. So I thought, this, yeah. this was the right move. <laughs> it was really the right move. You know, like I said, it's like, you know, if you got an Archie, stay the hell out of his way. Mm -hmm. You know, if you got a, you, you, uh, two times I had arguments with Archie. I went to him and uh, I told him, uh, Archie, you got this great idea of talking to Miller and, and Simonson started epic comics. You know, we'll do comics. And, and he starts screaming at me. He's sawing up to my ears. I can't handle it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I'm like, okay, okay. okay. So I went and I, I talked to Milgram and I said, I don't know what I'm going to do. He said, well, I'll do it. I said, because he was buddies with Starling. I said, uh, all right, you know, Archie doesn't want it. So you notice on the first couple of issues that Dreadstar gives Milgram co-editor credit. Right. Oh. Because the next morning, after yeah, Archie yelled at me, and after I kind of told Al he could do it, next morning Archie comes in and says, how dare you give this to me? It's epic. It's mine. You know? Like, <laughs> Aren't you the same guy <laughs> screaming at me, get out of my office, you idiot? You know? So anyway, like I went to Milgram and said, we've got to give it back to Archie. And he said, I want my name on it. I want to do it. I want to <laughs> so since it was creator-owned, it wasn't edited as much as the regular Marvel stuff, right? It's more hands-off. Yeah, it's more hands-off, and that was one thing Archie was terrific at, was, was a creator would come to him, and without the guy feeling oppressed or too much, Archie would help him to get his points across. And he usually picked good guys who were pretty good at it anyway. So uh, uh, he was perfect for that, because he, he would work with these creators who didn't, who, who were guns you couldn't name, and he'd get them to nudge the gun a little bit this way. The other thing that he got mad at me about was uh, Epic wasn't doing all that well. It was okay. It was making money, but not much. And these guys, as soon as something wasn't making a lot of money, they weren't mm -hmm. And uh, Epic Comics, they weren't doing well. Dread started okay. The rest of them, you know, hit and miss. Yeah, Dread Star even got new standards yeah. version for a while. Yeah. And ElfQuest and, later on. Yeah, ElfQuest. And yeah. Grew. So, so, so and Grew, right. Grew yeah. was probably the breakthrough book for the line. There's a story about that too. But, but anyway, so so the, the line is fine. I'm getting in trouble from upstairs about do we really need all this epic crap? You know? <laughs> and uh, and so I'm like, yeah. uh, so I go to Archie and I, I say, Archie, I got an idea. I want to do And uh, here's, we need to make some money. I said, so what I want to do is I want to do an Electra Assassin Epic Comic. It's a limited series, you know. And he's like furious. He says, we don't do Marvel characters. We do creator owned and blah, 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 blah. And I, I said, Archie, it's life or death. If we don't do something that sells some big numbers, like right now. <laughs> you know. So we had a big argument about it. 
then uh, I guess Miller was talking to him. And then Archie comes back and says, yeah, help him. Mm. And then, uh, 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 so they, they had, the ma- had the magazine already fizzled out at that point? With no, it was still around. still going around? Yeah. And uh, so, so they, they did it. And we, we, we were selling. I mean, it was an expensive comic. It was another comic. We were selling three, 400,000 comics each. Yeah. You know, and it really made a lot of money. And it kept Epic alive for as long as I was there. Anyway. Um, and then, was like you said, some of those other things did pretty well. Yeah. It got written up in, uh, uh, was it Cosmopolitan or Vanity Fair or something like that? And I was at my cousin's house. Uh, I was probably 11 or 12 years old or maybe even younger. And I open up this spread and it says, comics aren't just for kids anymore. And there was, yeah, it was a two or three page spread. And you know, there was uh, the, the usual suspects, Watchmen, Dark Knight, Mouse, you know, all that stuff. And then there was, a, a, you know, two or three panels from Electra Assassin. Oh, wow. And I remember my, for some reason, my maybe it was because of Electra, but my 11 year old brain went right to that. And I just said, that looks fucking cool. <laughs> yeah, the very first, the very first almost epic comic. I'll tell you, that was, I mean, I, I was reading G.I. Joe comics at the time, and then when I got my hands on that, it was just like, you know, I think it was, I mean, I, that I was an amazing was, comic. Yeah. I guess we were, I don't know if we were doing, I think it was before we were doing Epic Illustrator, maybe not, I'm not sure. It, it's a little that one got singled out. But, but Sergio, Sergio Aragones came to see me, and, uh, uh, you know, we're sitting there chatting. So I'll tell you why I came. He said, he said, you know, I'd like to do something for Marvel. He said, and I know, I know, Marvel has to own everything. And yeah. I know. He said, he said, but maybe we can make a deal where I get get a little taste of it, get a little piece I own something, or, or get a perpetual royalty or something. And I said, well, you can do better than that. This is before any of the set of comic stuff. Mm-hmm. Just me and Sergio said, I said, well, you can own it. We'll publish it, just like a, just like a book. Like, I said, yeah. He said, you can do that? I said, yeah. And he says, he said, really? I said, well, uh, I said, come on. We went to see Mike Hobbs. And I said, Mike, I want to do this, this thing with Sergio. He says, great. He said, you know, put together some contracts. Same as, same as with Miller and Simon. So Sergio says, oh, it's great. Well, I'm going to get some stuff together to show you. And I said, I'm sure it's going to be fun. And he said, but yeah, show us some stuff. And uh, he said, I'll be back in a couple of weeks. Couple weeks ago, I didn't want to hear from him. And uh, oh, he told me the name of it's going to be called Root. Right? That's all I knew. And then a, a, a couple of weeks after that, it's announced that Pacific Comics is publishing Root. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. I thought, I mean, he asked me, I, I said yes, and then he goes dancing off with these other people. So, uh, so anyway, then you know, time passes. Pacific goes under. Um, uh, so Archie, I don't know, he's talking there. Sergio or Sergio was talking to him. Anyway, Sergio used to play volleyball in the park, I and mean, he would turn up every once in a while. So somehow or another, they, they cook up that he's going to do this now for epic comics. And I said, that's great. That's what we started out to do all this long time ago. And um, so I get the first issue of Gru, and just, you know, can't wait to read it. And I open up, the first page is like Sergio sitting at a drawing board talking to the reader. And what he's saying is, is that you know, basically, Marvel's had its head up the ass, wouldn't do for hero and stuff, but now the last day comes every single time, so now we're going to grow. And I'm thinking, what? <laughs> Are you kidding there? me? So, yeah. I mean, and the thing is, it was Ebony who wrote that. 
Yes. It was Evan. It wasn't, right. wasn't Sergio, it was Evan here. And, and then he had his jaundice point of view. And, and, uh, uh, and, you know, but I, and I was really pissed. So I went to Archie and I, I said, I have to love you. And he said, he said well, why? What's, what's wrong with it? You know, this is not true. I said, he asked me if we could do a creator room. And I said, yes. And, uh, and then he went to, went to the Pacific. I said, well, where is it, you know, the Marvel had its head up its ass? And uh, Archie did. Eric Gonis said at one time, I would go there and they would say there is no way they can ever give any rights to anybody. They would take books out to prove to me that it was impossible. And every time that I talked to that tall fellow at Marvel, he said it was impossible. And I didn't have any contacts at Marvel, so there's no way they were going to do it. He said to Kim Thompson at that time. Thompson. What, what about yes, don't you understand? Yeah. <laughs> well, it wasn't any of Then we say, say Shooter, however, remembers their discussion much differently. He recalled proposing Marvel published crew under a normal real publishing agreement with Aragonus retaining all rights to his creation. Um, and I, but that's, there's that's, a note about the. Oh, I can't remember here. That's exactly what happened. For the first epic released issue, Aragonus drew himself in an introductory page that explained how Gru became a Marvel comic book. On that page, Aragonus says, I wanted to tell the story of Gru for years, but all the comics companies insisted that they retain, uh, yeah, that they all, they had to own him. I, of course, said no. Nobody said, just give me a little piece. Yeah. It says there, Jim Shooter wasn't in the habit of inspecting Epic Comics before they were shipped to the printer. He had enough fate in the Lions editor. No, it was Archie. Archie Goodwin to yeah. get the job Boy, done. Therefore, Shooter didn't see Gru number one until it had been printed. And when Shooter read Aragone's uh, introductory page, he was livid. Yeah, because it was Avenir. So right. I don't know yeah. why Sergio said that stuff, except because Avenir of what Avenir said. I don't know. It just. You know, well, it, like, it gives your it gives your side of the story here. That's nice. Yeah, I, as I told you, we try to be. It's very important that we're straight up and down. It says by Shooter's account, it was the only time he lost his temper with. So I'm I'm just sharing that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, a little little more perspective, which again matches up almost There's exactly very, to what you said. Those books are very balanced. I have to say. But the um, thing is, Sergio yeah. coming in and asking that predated. I think I wrote that Star chapter. Yeah, Star and, yeah, I wrote that uh, chapter. Miller and, and Simons are coming in. But when they came in, I was, you know, yes, I can do this. I already asked. I know. Well, if you think about it, why wouldn't you? Well, why wouldn't you? The, exactly. We're already doing career own. Why not? Right. Well, and, and Eric Gunn had such a giant following. Did you yeah. expect the book to take off as well as it did, though? Yeah. It was really waiting for a publisher like Marvel to get it out the newsstands. <laughs> yeah, we, we thought it was going to run a long time, too. Ten years. It's going to do great, and, and it's it, it did really well. issues. Yeah. <coughs> so, yeah. so anyway, I mean, like I said, I never I checked any of He took it to Image in like 1994 or something yeah. when the bankruptcy work stuff was happening and Marvel was falling apart. Yeah, I almost bought it out of bankruptcy there. I, go, I saw what was happening. I put together a little group, Chuck Brzezanski, to help with the marketing, and. At that time, it was a several billion dollar acquisition. And there's nobody's going to let a guy with a high school diploma have billions of dollars or something like that. So we had to get some heavy duty partners. So we got these two guys, ex uh, Cap Cities ABC guys, who had run billion dollar units with Cap Cities ABC. 
and they've been going off on their own. I guess like Disney bought it, right? Disney. Um, so we got them, and the idea was that they would run the media stuff, I would run the publishing, and uh, Chuck was going to be our marketing consultant. And um, so we <coughs> we we went. Uh, this time we started with the equity partner. We went to Perry Capital, which specializes in uh, distress purchases like that, and uh, <coughs> they they were ready to commit three billion dollars. And uh, they said, "Well, we're going to have to borrow some money too. Who can we get for the debt?" And I said, "Chase." They said, "Well, you know, do we know anybody at Chase? Anybody know anybody at Chase?" And somebody said they knew somebody middle manager. I said, "Well, I can call Reichenheiser." They said, "You know Reichenheiser?" I said, "Yes, I know Reichenheiser." So they said. Call him, like I dare you, you know. So we had a speakerphone, so we called Reichenheiser, and he took my call. And uh, I said, um, We're looking at uh, buying Marvel, they have a group here, Cap Cities, ABC guys, you know, and we're with Perry Capital. And um, I said, We're going to need some debt financing. And he said, You can count on my support. So, so anyway, like we, we had our little team together. We had, we had auditors and um, accountants and, and lawyers. And Marvel set up a document room. I think it was in Jersey City. Could be wrong about that. I think it was in Jersey City. So we went out there and we spent like three days in this document room going through all the documents. And what we discovered was that the contingent liabilities were huge. I mean, Torbiz and Marvel both owned parts of each other. Mm -hmm. We're suing each other <laughs> like mm -hmm. crazy, and it was a, such a tangled web. So uh, uh, I said, "Well, the only thing to do was buy both of them, you know, and then you don't have any problems." And the uh, cap said, "One of the cap six guys says, can you write a can you run a toy company?'" I said, "I know something about toy companies, but no, I can't run a toy company." <laughs> right. He said, "Well, what do we do?" I said, "Well, we need a toy company partner." And uh, they said, well, what, like who? And I said, Mattel. Mattel has been dying to get into more boys' toys. Mm -hmm. It's failing, you know, except for Masters, which is young. Uh, so they said, you know anybody at Mattel? I said, I'll call Jill Barrett. And I called her. She, she took my call. She put me in, on the phone with this guy Seymour something. Or something Seymour. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> he was their business development, business affairs guy. He flies to New York. He looks at the whole thing. His conclusion was that uh, why should we buy this now? Let's let it collapse and pick up the pieces. I said, it's not going to collapse. The trustee's not going to let this, mm -hmm. this collapse. So we get this argument, not in the front of way. But he would, he couldn't convince me. He was like, no, no, no it'll collapse. We'll, we'll buy it. It'll, we'll, we can buy it cheaper. Then. It's not going to happen. And sir, what did the trustee do? He put them together. Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, which was the obvious thing you would do. So that bid failed. We, we never actually got to make a bid. I mean, we, we looked at it, we tried mm -hmm. to get a toy partner, that didn't work out. End of, end of story. Um, uh, so anyway, they they, they marched on, uh, toy business, Marvel, and then what they sold to did Disney for three billion. Yeah, something like yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Which already seems to like, seems like it's paid off. Oh, yeah. Based just on the Avengers movies. Yeah, yeah, big time. Yeah, I think so. I think that when Perlmutter dies or goes away or retires or something, 
There's gonna be a lot of big changes in the world. Because ProMotor is powerful enough that even Disney doesn't mess with them. But I think that the people at Disney, I worked for Disney for a year, and I think the people there are just appalled that the trains don't run on time and that creators do kind of anything they want with these franchise characters and no one seems to be mining the store and mm -hmm. it drives them crazy. Well, of course, Disney's well known as being a very disciplined company. Yeah, yeah they're for a year. Where are they you see that with the Disney Channel shows, too. They cycle things in and out. They'll work through the characters and the creators, and then they'll move on. They're, they're very bottom line oriented. Yeah, very much so. And uh, when I worked with them, I started as a consultant. And uh, so I told them what I wanted, and they, they told me what they would pay. It wasn't bad. It just mm -hmm. wasn't what I asked. And, uh, and I said, why don't I, don't, I you know, you'll have to do better than that. And, the guy I was dealing with, uh, Steve McBeth, he, he said, uh, he said, no, he said, we're Disney. He said, you work for us for the rest of your life. That name Disney on your resume will open doors. He said, so take, take it from me. I said, okay, I'll take it. So I was there, I helped them bring their Disney publishing in-house, and I helped start Disney Adventures Magazine. And I did some, I did some other stuff. I worked on the Dick Tracy adaptation but I was the idea was I was going to be a consultant and they were going to hire me to be the president of the publishing commission mm -hmm. and uh, uh, told you I was a pariah right so I was working the guy I worked for, for directly was under Stephen but his name was Michael Lynn and uh, uh, so we're getting near time to, near go time you know where where uh, we're, we're gonna uh, get the final authorization to start this company work the business plan I did the publishing plan, I had it all figured out, I'm, I'm getting ready to be the president of Disney Publishing. And, uh, and then my, Michael was thrilled, I thought it was great. Uh, so uh, uh, he said, we're having a meeting in a few weeks where we've got to, whoever was in charge of these small products, I want to say Field, I'm not sure, Frank something, I, I can't remember, whoever the muckety muck, there was Eisner, and there were three guys in the consumer products, movies, and parks. Mm -hmm. Consumer products guy, that was the guy that we reported. He had to sign on on starting his publishing. <clears throat> so, uh, so anyway, uh, a week goes by, and I hear from Linton. He says, uh, I need to meet with you in New York before you come out here. Okay. He had an office in New York. And then he kept calling, Secretary kept calling, saying, uh, Michael can't make it today. Can, uh, can you do it on Tuesday? Michael can't make it on Tuesday. Can you do it on Friday? Michael's in Europe. Can you do it on Monday? Mm -hmm. Like any time, you know. I'm a consultant. I'm available. So finally, the day comes. It's coming down to the wire. This meeting's coming up, and so the secretary sends me my travel stuff, and it's a coach ticket, <laughs> and I'm staying in a motel, and instead of the luxury car, I got like a Yugo, you know, uh -huh. economy car. Yeah. I'm like, hmm, immediately I'm suspicious. So, <laughs> so I called her up. I said, I can't, I cannot fly coach. I said, I'm, I'm too big and my legs are, you know. So she got me a business class. And it was like an ordeal, but she got me business class. So I'm suspicious. And I get there and uh, uh, go to this meeting. And this guy walks up to me and says, hi, I'm Randy Ashev, the president of uh, Disney Publishing. Yes. How are you? 
And Michael Linton is there looking like, oh, Jesus Christ. Because you know, what he wanted to do was warn me that he had decided to go with somebody else. So now we're in this meeting with the big shot to convince him, you know, that the, and the Randy, nice guy, smart guy, but he had never he had nothing to do with comics. He hadn't, he didn't, had never even worked in magazine publishing. He'd done controlled circulation stuff. Mm -hmm. That's all. Trade magazines and stuff? You know, the giveaways that, uh, oh, okay. to, to the dentist office and to the, you know, controlled circulation, you know, where, where it's, um, make your money on the ads and you distribute the magazine for free to a special interest group, mm -hmm. you know. Um, uh, so anyway, uh, so whoever the big shot was starts asking him questions he can't answer. And so I'm doing all this fancy dancing. Oh, Randy asked me to look into that for him. And I said, I didn't get you the stuff, man. I'm sorry, but here, this is what I found, you know, da 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 da, -da. And I'm, I'm covering his ass. And, um, and every time he'd say something that was wrong, then I'd find a way to make it part of the right answer, you know. Uh, well, that's one thing. And the other things that we have, you know, planned are this, you know. And, and, and uh, so at the end of the thing, the guy signed off on it. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm walking out to go back to my Ford Fiesta and go to my hotel. <laughs> and uh, uh, just imagining you sitting like this. Randy too. comes to catch something. He says, Say, you free for dinner tonight? And I said, Sure. So anyway, takes me out to dinner, sit down. The first thing he says is, He says, He says, well, you really did me a, you know, a real favor. That you really saved my ass. He said, and I heard you were such a jerk. <laughs> I said, I'm a consultant. It's my job to save your ass. And uh, so uh, he said, uh, he said, you know, they they told me that they weren't going to hire you because you know you just were, you know, just socially unacceptable. And so a week later, Michael Linton did come to New York and asked me to come to his office. And he apologized. He said, I wanted to give you a heads up. He said, we were all ready to hire you. He said, but I started doing some due diligence. And I, he said, everybody I called, they, they said you were terrible. You know? and he, said, he said, I thought you were great. I thought you were um, creative, and, you know, the most cooperative, creative, and, you know, hardworking and, and stuff. He said, he said, so maybe you change, or maybe they're lying. He said, but we can't take a chance. Mm -hmm. And they, everybody said that if you were there, no one would work for us. I said, if I'm sitting behind a desk with a big, big checkbook, I said, people will work. You know, I said, but I, all right, I hear you. I understand. I said, I know who you talk to. Oh, thank you.